the evil endocrine disruptor. These EDCs are mainly found in pesticides, plastics, tobacco smoke, prescription drugs, food additives, fuels, detergents, and personal care products, so a lot of cosmetics. They attach to the same receptors as your naturally circulating hormones would attach to, but what they do there, nobody knows. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Welcome, my friend, to the fourth installment of our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series for 2020. And you know, we could not do this series without addressing the extra challenges that are facing women this year during the pandemic. The effect of COVID-19 is being felt in all walks of life, in every single way imaginable. And that includes breast health. And so that is what Dr. Christy Funk and I will be exploring on the program today going to be talking about the studies and the numbers and to hear about them from Dr. Funk's point of view as a breast cancer surgeon who is immersed in this world. It is truly eye-opening how many fewer women are going to the doctor and getting screened and getting the help and the treatment that they need. And the question becomes, well, how far will COVID's ripple effect go? We're going to be getting into that on the show today as well. And also the sneaky risk factors of breast cancer, some of which we can control that are under our power and others, not so much. There are three things that Dr. Funk will be focusing on. Toxins in the environment, hormones, and stress. The latter of which, of course, we have an abundance of right now. So we're going to be talking about those factors and we're going to try to steer the ship as best as possible to counter them. And that includes focusing on your health and your diet. Also on the program today, a dose of inspiration. We will be hearing from Olympic gold medal winner and breast cancer survivor, Keegan Randall. She went from the highest of highs of standing on that podium to the lowest of lows within a short amount of time. Just after winning that medal, doctors informed her that she had breast cancer. But like the competitor that she is, Keegan faced it head on. She took up that challenge and began fighting for her life. It was a fight she would ultimately win claiming victory just as she had done so many times in her athletic endeavors. So she will be here with us to share her incredibly inspiring story as our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign concludes. But before we get to that, let's start with the one and the only Dr. Christy Funk as we learn about the risk factors that can be rather sneaky and how the pandemic is affecting women's health.
Continuing our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Joined, as always, by the one, the only, she is funkastic, she is funkalicious, she is a funkadactyl, she is Dr. Christy Funk, she is the author of Breasts, the Owner's Manual. Thank you so very much for joining us, Dr. Funk. Uh, thank you for having me, glamour rocker skinny boy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Oh gosh, man. I hate to end this series. You you are just you are so much fun. Um but we must. We have covered a lot of ground in the last three shows, but now we have three more things that we need to tackle before we can uh put a wrap on this series. And uh those three come in the form of sneaky risk factors when it comes to breast cancer. Sneaky risk factors, things that not necessarily popping up on your radar. So why don't we go through your top three? What would you say is your first sneaky risk factor? Well, a sneaky risk factor, number one, is unfortunately ubiquitous. You come into contact with this all day long, whether you're in your home, in your car, in your office, just walking outside. So what this is, is called the evil endocrine disruptor. Dun, dun, dun. So 90% of the over 100,000 synthetic chemicals that are used in the United States have actually never been tested for their effects on human health. And nobody has uh, really any idea what the xenoestrogen level of a lot of these compounds might be. So xeno means foreign, and so foreign estrogens behave like an EDC. So endocrine disrupting compounds are ubiquitous, okay? You wake up and brush your teeth, toothpaste, EDC. You go grab the, push the elevator button to go down to your car, EDC. You go sit in your car, you're surrounded by an EDC. You go to the gas station, hold the pump, EDC. You go out, get your takeout for lunch maybe, and you have a plastic fork in your plastic water bottle, EDC. So you go home at night, you put your head on your pillow, wash with a detergent with an EDC. It is ubiquitous. And EDC, endocrine disrupting compounds, are as they sound, estrogen, endocrine mimickers. So estrogen is one of the naturally circulating hormones that can be mimicked by synthetic chemicals in our lives, but so is insulin or DHA, DHEA and testosterone from your adrenal gland, parathormone, oxytocin and uh, growth hormone coming from your pituitary gland or melatonin from your pineal gland, on and on it goes. And these EDCs are mainly found in pesticides, plastics, tobacco smoke, prescription drugs, food additives, fuels, detergents, industrial solvents, and personal care products, so a lot of cosmetics. They attach to the same receptors as your naturally circulating hormones would attach to, but what they do there, nobody knows. Your guess is as good as mine because they could have a downstream reaction that is stronger than your normal hormone would have given it, a weaker one. It could even have a protective effect. We just don't know because the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, in 1998, they formed this endocrine disruptor screening program, 98. And their first update came 17 years later in August 2015 when they published their initial review, okay, of 52 pesticides. Okay, we had 100,000 plus chemicals out there and it took 17 years to look at 52 and they were all pesticides. 
at that rate, we're going to find out what's going on in um, 32,000 years. Literally, I did the math. So in the meantime, we don't know what these EDCs are doing. They're affecting gene expression. We know some certain things, and they can potentially thereby add to the burden of breast cancer. A lot of EDCs, unfortunately, are super stable. You like stability when it comes to a job or your marriage, but you do not want these EDCs parking themselves in your fat cells where they usually park for decades on end because we just don't know what's happening there. But to put this in perspective, and then I want to hit a few specific EDCs, and then I want to go over how to minimize their um, impact on your body and in your life. But um, one thing to put into perspective is simply this. Harkening back to our last couple of talks, there is the initiating carcinogen that creates a cancerous seed that must then plant itself into soil, into a microenvironment around that tumor cell that is conducive to that cell existing, proliferating, and flourishing, metastasizing. Big exhale here. EDCs, what are they? They're creating the seed. They don't create the microenvironment. So we're going to know that the power of our food and lifestyle choices can overpower the initiating carcinogen, carcinogenic effect of these EDCs. In other words, too, I think of the things that contribute to cancer formation in our bodies as being weighed on a scale. And the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign has really focused on the four well-researched boulders that really pose a threat to your breast health. And those boulders are diet and nutrition, exercise, alcohol, and obesity. Now we can sprinkle on these sneaky little uh, carcinogens that we're about to talk through my top three, but they're more like into pebbles or grains of sand. Yes, they can tip a scale, but if you already have a boulder on your scale, I'd work at those before you break a sweat wondering literally if the aluminum in your deodorant is contributing to breast cancer because that is a pebble, if anything at all. So what are some of the big EDCs? that we know the following ones have been tested in at least animal studies and some in humans that they definitely affect the risk for breast cancer. One is um, alkylphenols. These are industrial chemicals found in laundry detergents and cleaning products. Another is dioxins. So the body fat of every single human being, including newborns, already contains dioxins. They form by the incineration of products containing polyvinyl chloride and PCBs and other chlorinated compounds, but the primary exposure is via consuming meat, dairy, and human breast milk. Not a reason not to breastfeed your baby. The benefits of that outweigh the risks, but sadly, the only way that we rid our bodies of dioxins is through breastfeeding. So men, yours is trapped for good. So that's frightening, and dioxins are, you know, in meat, dairy, and meat, including the fish. We had talked about that the other day. Uh, Another big one that I love to talk about is BPA. The, the uh, bisphenol A in plastics is so ubiquitous in our world. And the older the plastic is, the more of an EDC that it releases. So, you know, the um, this is, again, a, an idea of a boulder versus a pebble. Most meat, most 
cows, uh, cattle in our country, 94% of our meat is conventionally raised. And when it is conventionally raised, they shove Xeranol behind the ear so that these guys grow to be 1,700 pound heifers in 18 months in time for slaughter. All right. So what is Xeranol? It is literally the most potent synthetic estrogen ever made. And it boasts 100,000 times the estrogen influence in our bodies, as does the BPA and plastic. You see? So if you're worried, oh, I'm not going to drink that water out of a plastic bottle with my hamburger, it's not your fault. But no one's ever explained to you the vast, ridiculous difference between the estrogen effect of the burger, the Xeranol in the burger, versus the bottle. Interestingly, Way back in 1981, prepubescent, 3- to 10-year-old boys and girls in Milan, Italy, started sprouting breasts, and they tracked it back to the Xeranol in beef. So in 1981, they banned the use of Xeranol in all beef throughout Europe. And in 1989, they banned the importation of all beef from the United States and Canada because we used Xeranol and they had deemed it absolutely carcinogenic to humans and they didn't want it in their country, in their countries. Okay, that ban is still in effect today because we are still using Xeranol. So again, BPA is a risk, but it's riskier if you're eating your typical just, you know, in and out burger. Flame retardants, these are polybrominated, uh, brominated, uh, what are they called, diphenyl esters. And these are in plastics, paint, furniture, electronics, and they're meant, they're there because they make them flame resistant. I'd rather, you know, not be set on fire, but um, breast uh, milk, again, is the main way that we get rid of this, and breast milk levels in the United States are 10 to 20 times higher than they are in Europe of this uh, PBDE. And I don't think that breast milk is making your baby fireproof. So that's another one. Um, food additives like recombinant bovine uh, somatotropin, this actually had an outcry many years back. Now only 15% of dairy cows are getting these injections with the this um, EDC. Xeranol replaced something else that was called DES, if any of you remember that. So DES was found to cause like vaginal cancers in offspring. And so it was just banned from being used as a growth promoter in cattle. And then we just found Xeranol instead. Pesticides, so many pesticides can act like endocrine disruptors and estrogen mimickers in your body. And there are so many legal ones that it's shocking, but uh, one of them that's legal in the U.S., again, the EU banned ages ago, 2005, is called atrazine. And atrazine, <laughs> I'm laughing just because it's crazy that we can even allow it in the country because at levels that are literally considered lower than safe in your drinking water. So they have levels that they say, oh, that's okay, you can drink that. Lower than that level, though, if you take that level of atrazine, you can turn a male frog into a female, complete with like lady parts like eggs and everything. That's how estrogenic atrazine is. Whoa. It also turns on aromatase. So you know by now that that's an enzyme in your fat cells that converts other steroids into estrogen. So it's like a double whoa. 
there's phthalates. Many people have heard of that because it's ubiquitous in a many cosmetic products. If something has a fragrance or a perfume that's not like plant-based um, perfume, then it's going to have phthalates in it. And this promotes fat cell growth and alters IGF-1 levels. And we talked at other episodes about polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, but burning meat, coal, oil, coal, oil, look at me, gasoline, trash, tobacco, uh, both active and passive users of tobacco or wood, all of that releases literally over 100 different polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. So basically, um, it is so ubiquitous, but I want to just, again, hone in on the fact that there don't feel like helpless against these things. There are things you can do, and I want to share with you just a short list of easy ways to feel like, okay, at least I feel a bit protected, more so than I was yesterday because I wasn't doing any of this stuff. But it really is, um, it's just not well established. It's not well established how much of an impact these things have, but it is clearly thought that they're just affecting the seed, the seed maker rather than the soil predominantly. So we've really discussed what determines cancer cell promotion and promotion has the final say when it comes to controlling cancer. So limit your exposures as best as you can and then just live your life, but live it well. All right. So I'm going to share with you my top tips for reducing estrogenic EDCs in your life. And it comes straight out of a screen share of my book. So we're going to talk through eight simple ways to lower toxic exposures. One, wash your hands. Everybody's doing this with the COVID uh, epidemic right now, but um, pandemic, I should say. But wash your hands frequently, always before you eat. Avoid triclosan-laden antibacterial soaps and just use plain old soap and water. The WHO calls antibiotic resistance a major threat to global health security antibiotic-resistant superbugs. And remember, 80% of all antibiotics are given to livestock that we then eat. So anyway, don't help a bug out. The next thing, dust and vacuum. We talked about the flame retardants. These are on your stereo system. They're on your couch. They're on your radio. They're everywhere. And they collect in dust. So if you just zip it up, at least you got rid of them there. Ban plastics. Use glass, steel, or ceramic for storing, preparing, serving food and drink. I've got a whole list of how you can be mindful about recalling those plastics out of your life. And it's super basic. And at first you think, oh, this is so laborious to like trade it all out because plastic bags are so easy. But single-use plastic is just like a, is the bane of our existence. I mean, there's just a shocking, the shocking stats. Something in here, um, we have 22 billion plastic bottles a year that are sinking into landfills. 22 billion. And it's just a staggering number. And a 12 million pieces of plastic get dumped into the ocean annually. And 1 million seabirds are killed by plastic each year. So, you know, I was talking about fish and microplastics and microbeads. That's where it's coming from. So we can definitely do our part by going, you know, steel and ceramic. Eat wisely. We definitely talked through this, but eat organic and locally grown. Um, you know, we haven't talked actually that much about organic, except to say that in meats, it's really no, not that much better. You're only avoiding the additives and not all the other things. But I also want to caution against getting too overboard. I would way, way rather you have a non-organic 
salad than an organic burger. In other words, the parts per million of pesticide that gets into your system in a given meal is going to be negligible in terms of causing cancer. So it's much more of a problem if what you're consuming is organic, but constantly filled with saturated fats and cholesterol and this barrage of uh, animal protein reaction to your oxidative stress level, meal after meal after meal, increasing estrogens and growth hormones and inflammation and free radicals, allowing blood vessels to form through angiogenesis, and ultimately just creating this free radical damage that allows cancer cells to mutate and propagate and spread. Okay, so again, the it's more important to eat whole food plants, even to the ones that are not organic, rather than having organic animal protein. Make better choices for household products. You can filter your drinking water. You can get a HEPA filter. You can think about getting big items next time you go to replace the couch or a mattress, one that doesn't have um, the flame retardant built in, and just get something that's naturally less flammable, like leather, wool, well, not leather, that's in my book, um, wool and cotton. <laughs> then the, I love this one. Okay. Grow houseplants. These plants are awesome because they're hard to kill and I'm not really good with plants. So it turns out that we've got these, you know, we talk about carpet, couch, all the ovens, cleaning solutions, synthetic materials, constantly emitting chemicals. And then NASA discovered that there are these household plants that literally absorb the harmful toxins from the air, specifically benzene, formaldehyde, and trichloroethylene. So you've got all these plants that are super, like they're, some of them are ridiculously cheap and easy to put into the corner of the room, and they're pretty too. So all those philodendrons, mother-in-law's tongue, peace lilies, um, jacanas, aloe vera, palms, potted mums, on and on it goes. But uh, those are amazing options to put around in each room, filtering the air that you're breathing. Make better choices for your cosmetic products. We talked about the phthalates. We want to avoid those lotions and cosmetics, uh, body washes, shampoos, conditioners, moisturizers. It, it just go through your bathroom and really start looking at those labels. You're probably in tune now with looking at the ingredients labels on foods when you shop. If you're into the whole food plant-based eating for decades or just newly, that's like the first thing you're trained to do basically is look at the ingredients. But we don't necessarily look at the ingredients in all of our personal care products, and you'd be shocked what you see there. And finally, exercise, because a lot of toxins are excreted through sweat um, and, of course, stool and urine. But if you get a move on, you're going to sweat out some of those ubiquitous toxins. That's outstanding. You know what I really like about the things that you just said there was, was that analogy that you used about the boulder and the pebble. And I think that you're right. You know, so many people, they just, they strive for this perfection. And I think in a case like this, it's, it's almost impossible to be perfect and eliminate all of these risk factors. Like it's just not feasible to think that you can possibly do it. And a lot of people think, well, why even try? But I think that your analogy with the boulder versus the pebble really helps to put things into perspective. Right. We can't live in a bubble. But if you get rid of the boulders, then you can do some practical things to just limit the pebbles if they worry you that much. But yeah, I agree. Uh, on the exam room live, every day we open up what we call the doctor's mailbag. And that's where one of our experts, whether it's Dr. Barnard, Dr. Loomis, we'll get you on one day to do uh, one of these shows as well. Answer uh, a viewer questions. So often 
the mailbag is just stuffed full of questions with people asking about HRT hormone replacement therapy and, and hormones. So talk to us a little bit about that, because I know that that too made your list of sneaky risk factors. Yeah, it's sneaky. A lot of women don't realize that um, a lot of women don't realize that hormone replacement therapy is quite controversial when it comes to breast cancer risk. So especially if you're at elevated risk for breast cancer or you yourself have already had even an estrogen negative breast cancer, we're hard pressed to allow women to kind of freely go on hormone replacement. And one of the biggest reasons comes from the Women's Health Initiative. So this study published in July 2002, it was a landmark study that hit the press after 5.2 years because it was halted knowing that it would be like unethical to continue after. So we had 16,000 postmenopausal women with a uterus is key because we're talking about adding progesterone into the, the experimental group versus placebo. So now 5.2 years later, we halted because there's 26% more breast cancer in those on Prempro. There are also more heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, and dementia, but there's fewer colon cancers than hip fractures. So this concluded, and then the the study continued on with another 12,000 women, and in 2010, they gave us an update that said, okay, the bottom line is estrogen plus progesterone increases breast cancer to the tune of one out of every 143 users of hormones. So in other words, got 143 women on HRT, one of them will get a breast cancer she would not have otherwise had. And at first glance, you say, well, I'm like hot flashing my way to a divorce here. I think I'll take my chances because those don't sound that high. But when you do the math on the fact that there are 6 million women in America on HRT, and this math here translates into 0.007% of 6 million, you're talking about just over 41,000 invasive breast cancers every single year that are totally unnecessary if you're able to get women off of hormones. Now, at the same time, actually, in 2002, I should say, so in 2002, WHI reported out. In 2003, the women, the million women study came out from the UK. And as it you would guess 1.1 million women were followed on HRT and they too found uh, actually 60% increase in breast cancer for those on hormones versus placebo. But interestingly, what I wanted to say is that in 2002, the study came out, everybody panicked and literally almost overnight from July, 2002 in the next month or so, 33 million hormone prescriptions disappeared because you write them, you know, for every two or three months. Uh, And the following year in 2003, an unprecedented 7% drop in breast cancer incidents happened. And that drop was almost exclusively in women over 50 with estrogen-driven tumors. So pretty clear cut that taking away the HRT had a dramatic impact on the U.S.'s um, breast cancer incidents nearly 12 months later. Then this study came out just last fall in 2019 again from the UK, and it is a meta-analysis looking at over 100,000 women using all types of hormone replacement, including bioidentical. Estrogen plus progestin, one in 50, after five years use, had an unnecessary breast cancer, 
With intermittent progestin, you got one in 70. And with estrogen alone, it was one in 200. So there's no real escaping it with any combo. But the point is, it's clearly seen that progestin seems to be more of a contributor than the estrogen. You use the estrogen alone when you have no uterus. The progestin is meant to protect the uterus by breaking down the buildup of the lining from the estrogen. But then if you don't have a uterus, you don't need it. And then all of a sudden, there's less breast cancer caused by estrogen alone. Then it gets nuanced by other studies actually showing in estrogen alone groups a protective effect against breast cancer. But it turns out that's only for 10 years use. And it's only if you don't use it in the first five years after going into menopause, which is of course when you need it because of all the hot flashes and vaginal dryness and decreased libido and mood swings, etc. So as you can already tell, it's an individualized discussion. Even from my point of view, I don't just point blank say absolutely not, never, ever any HRT. But you want to talk to a woman about why she's even on it because it could just be something as simple as like, oh, my, I have osteoporosis and I was told it would build up my bones. Well, this bisphosphonates and healthy eating and weight-bearing exercise, there's things that you could do if that's your reason. The main complaint though is generally hot flashes and night sweats. And so that I've got a little list for here, non-estrogenic options, complementary medicine like acupuncture and Chinese herbs, other herbal remedies, uh, over-the-counter menopause. Miracle is something that from Pink Lotus that actually has three randomized controlled trials against placebo behind it, proving that it doesn't elevate estrogen levels in women, has no uh, side effects at all. In fact, the only side effects were good ones. It improved your cholesterol level increasing HDL, decreasing LDL, and improved bone density. Black cohosh, it, it works in about 50% of people against placebo, but you can't take it more than six months because it has liver damage. So there's some cautionary tales in here, eating primrose oil, ginseng, melatonin, vitamin E. Then you could get prescriptions that alter things um, that help stave off the hot flashes. So meds that change nerve impulses and blood flow are commonly prescribed. Um, but then, of course, now you're into prescription meds, which have their own bag of side effects, like gabapentin can cause headaches and people. So another category that you'll probably recognize are serotonin blockers, aka um, antidepressants, but they work for hot flashes as well. Body movement, biofeedback, focused breathing, exercise, stretching, tai chi yoga. These things do work. And I think a lot of people look for a quick fix, but um, just diet and exercise and soy goes a long way in staving off the hot flashes. But I will say that this menopause miracle is a miracle. You could read the reviews on this, like people cannot live without it. And it has been tested in liver function as well, meaning it doesn't interfere with tamoxifen metabolism because that needs to be activated by your liver. And this doesn't interfere with that. So people on with breast cancer on tamoxifen can safely take it. Okay, we have one last sneaky peach when it comes to risk factors for breast cancer, and that is simply not screening. And we could have known that by looking back at data for pre-mammography in the 70s and 80s when mammography was just starting to come into vogue in the 80s and early 90s. Boom, you can see a massive spike in breast cancer incidence. It's not because something toxic happened to the planet. It's simply because uh, screening started and all these cancers were getting diagnosed. So here's some interesting data on how COVID is affecting breast cancer. And what was done here was to evaluate the breast imaging, so the mammography and ultrasounds that was getting done pri right when 
COVID was starting to be understood. So it started in February 2nd, and then it ended April 11th, 2020, this particular study. And it looked at the drop in breast imaging, in genetics consults, and in breast surgery, basically right when COVID was starting to get known and 10 weeks thereafter. And the average weekly decline between February and April 2020 was a 61.7% drop in breast imaging, a 26.4% drop in genetics consults, and a 20.5% drop in breast surgery. So what concerns me here is not simply that women aren't getting screened. You know, part of you could argue, eh, I mean, they can, they'll get screened next year in the cancer if it were there this year may not have, may have been too small to see. There are certainly societies, several of them that say every other year screening is their go-to. So skipping this year might not matter if you had it last year because they're already advocating for every other year screening. However, here's my thoughts. First of all, in terms of screening, I side with the American Society of Breast Surgeons, and they say for normal risk women to begin screening at age 40 and to not stop or skip years until you plan to die in the next 10 years. <laughs> Admittedly, hard thing to plan for, but the point being, like if you have end-stage cardiac disease and haven't embraced a whole food plant-based lifestyle with a healthy other strategies such as exercise and stopping smoking, um, you, you'll, you know, your doctor can predict 10 years is a long time to live with end stage, uh, cardio, cardio, cardiac disease. So the point simply is we don't advocate for skipping years. And my biggest concern is that at the same time that all of this breast surveillance is dropping off the radar, we have statistical reports of an increase in people being sedentary of an increase in alcohol use, of an increase in stress. I mean, obviously, this, I'm not questioning why, but we have increased stress and depression and anxiety. There's loss of jobs. There's loss of income. There's uncertainty about the future. So we have all of these known risk factors that are added to not looking. <laughs> so it, it compounds itself because Again, we're getting back to the soil. The soil is getting fueled with pro-cancer factors, and that cancer might be there undetected because the screening isn't happen happening. So, so I have a concern about that, and my, my strong advice is to put a mask on and get your screening if you're due. And along those lines, what kind of screening should you be getting? One thing that women need to understand is their breast density. You don't know what it is unless you've been told by a doctor because it's not how you think your breasts feel. Like, oh, they're lumpy and bumpy. They're super dense. That might be true, but actually it's a mammographic reading that interprets whether or not your breasts are dense. And density is determined by how many milk-producing lobules and ducts you have going on inside your breast tissue versus stroma and fat, which is blackish gray. And the problem with dense breasts is twofold. Number one, if it's dense, that's the those are the elements of breast tissue that get breast cancer, ducts and lobules. And number two, the denser your breasts, the harder it is to see a cancer because cancer is also white. So now you've got a snowstorm of dense breast tissue and you're looking for a snowball. In dense, the densest of breasts, we miss like 30 to 50% of breast cancers when they're there. So here's a visual representation of what we call, um, oh, 
I apologize. It's now changed. It's uh, density levels A, B, C, D, not one, two, three, four. But um, if your breast has zero to 25% of the breast is dense, that's actually fatty to a mammographer. And so that is not dense and it would be level A. If it's 25 to 50% dense, we call that class B. And if it's 50 to 75% dense, it's class C. And over 75% of the breast looking like a total snowstorm, then it's class D. So what a what is a dense breasted woman to do? She is to get a 3D mammogram. So what is 3D? This is fairly new on the scene. It's been around since 2012, but it's expensive for imaging centers to implement. So it's slowly been populating the imaging centers across the country. And now most men, most do have the 3D. So here's the thing. If you think of your breast like a loaf of raisin bread, and who doesn't, and you squash it between two plates and take a picture, that would be 2D. You tell me to get, pick out the raisins. And I'm like, okay, I think I see some. But if you get a 3D, sorry, ladies, it's the same squishing, and it's actually a little more radiation. But what I see on my end is like 15 to 30 slices of bread. And now, aha, the raisins are popping out. So if you have dense breasts, a study, a big study showed, it's called STORM, that you will find 34% more breast cancer with 17% fewer callbacks for false positives using 3D in dense-breasted women versus 2D. But what are you going to do if you don't have access to 3D? Like if it's 50 miles away, or as is unfortunately often the case, they want to have you drop down like three Benjamins, like 300 bucks, just to have the addition of the 3D. I'll tell you something reassuring there. And that is that um, there was another study looking at three over 3,000 women with negative 2D mammograms. So your typical digital, they all, this, is a, this would be a 2D reconstruction. So that 2D was negative. They all came back. They all got a screening ultrasound and they got a 3D mammogram. For every one who got a 3D mammogram, they found four more breast cancers. But everyone who got a screening ultrasound, they found seven more cancers. So 2D screening plus a screening ultrasound will get you possibly even a better cancer detection rate than 3D. So don't plunk down the money if you don't have it and don't drive 50 plus miles. You could just request a screening ultrasound if you have dense breasts and insurance should, but again, it doesn't always, should cover it. The last screening modality that's well vetted is breast MRI, but it's certainly not something you want to just get because it's associated with gadolinium injection. It's like 45 minutes in a clanging tube, not good for claustrophobic people, and it's expensive, etc. And it can be too sensitive. So it sees a bunch of stuff that's nothing, and then you got to hunt it down. But it has its place. And the main reasons are if you already are diagnosed with breast cancer and you want to stage it and be sure there's nothing else going on. If you're presenting with bloody nipple discharge and the mammo and ultrasound aren't figuring out why, that's an unusual enough symptom that it, you should get a breast MRI. If you have a cancer that's in multiple places, they already figured out that it's in multiple locations, um, or you're in a recurrence mode, then you want to check it again. And some women, they may have to pay out of pocket, but if you have breast implants and augmentation just for you know cosmetics, you might want to get a breast MRI because... NAMO can't get the good, a good enough compression to get a good reading on it. 
And finally, it's a little controversial. Uh, even the, um, the American Cancer Society says, ah, don't bother with self-breast exam. But I maintain that you should bother because I can't tell you how many women I see who have felt their own cancers. And it's because they just have this like unconscious memory of what their breasts feel like. And I advocate that women start, girls start doing self-breast exams when they start their periods. And they should do it one week after their period when their breasts are less tender and less lumpy. And it's not because I think a 14-year-old is going to have breast cancer. It's because I want her to familiarize herself with the terrain because it is lumpy and bumpy and confusing. And I want her to not think, ew, when she touches her own breast. And as she ages, and heaven forbid, if she gets into those decades where cancer is more likely statistically, she'll have the lay of the land. And one day, hopefully never, but if she were to stumble across a lump, she'll be like, ooh, that was not there before. And she'll know it because she's familiar with the rest and she's not scared to, to touch them. So that is some sneaky stuff. There's one more super sneaky risk factor. What is that? This... Uh, I hope it doesn't stress you out, but it is stress. So when we look at the Life After Cancer Epidemiology Study, LACE, we find out something really important here, and that is that when they followed over 2,200 early-stage women with breast cancer, but early stage, right, and they were followed an average of 10.8 years, in that decade, those with low levels of social support from friends and family and lack of religious or social participation were 58% more likely to have died during the study period than those with high levels of support. And I find this so important for people to embrace and to really um, to understand because stress happens to all of us, of course, and it doesn't have to announce itself like an earthquake. It can easily be chronic stress that results from the cumulative effect of, of little tiny shocks, right? Like how we handle life struggles, large and little, directly impacts our well-being. And this does tr translate into a physiologic science agrees with the idea of stress predisposing you to cancer. It's hard to really pinpoint stress, isolate it as a contributing factor, but it's not impossible. So we do know the mind-body connection is super real. Like when you say it, it might sound loosey-goosey, but let me just give you two examples. An erection, mind-body connection, and you're sitting in a movie theater, or you used to be, and you're watching something scary, and all of a sudden your heart's pounding and your palms are spreading. I mean, you're just sitting in a chair, and yet your mind has affected your body to the point where your heart's racing. Right, so healthy doses of stress are fine. You want them, like if you're gonna give a victorious uh, presentation, or you want to beat your opponent in a tennis match. A little stress here and there is great. You want your heart rate up and faster breathing and energy coursing through your veins. But the problem is, so many of us respond to life as if we need energy to uh, outrun a bear, you know, and we we spend our days trapped in this fight or flight phenomenon, and if we respond to life as if we're about to get eaten every time there's deadlines or traffic or work or child care is driving me crazy or bills or relationships, all these things that cause psychological stress becomes physiologic stress. And in a moment of a tennis match, that stress gets released 
and it's over. But on a chronic level, it wreaks havoc on your body. And what we figured out is that the chain reaction comes from chemical messengers running around, specific things. Um, what starts off as just epinephrine from your adrenal gland, getting you hyped up, ends up elevating levels of estrogen, of testosterone, of cortisol, dopamine, serotonin, and then enter into the equation all the inflammatory cytokines. These are things like interleukin-1, um, tumor necrosis factor, interleukin-6. And then those things rise up, and guess what goes down? Natural killer cells. And just like it sounds, NK cells are there to bind and destroy tumor cells. But now they're diminished because chronic stress induces oxidative stress. And remember, that's the heavy one. That's when the immune system starts to shut down without the antioxidants to balance it out. So there was a meta-analysis over 300 independent studies confirmed that stress alters immunity. It might sound basic, but it's nice to have it in the science that it really does. And they have shown that stressful life events and chronic stress affect other serious diseases like cardiovascular disease and death, major depression, obesity, diabetes, the progression of HIV to AIDS, um, Alzheimer's, GI distress. So nothing has specifically shown how stress links directly to breast cancer causation. But breast cancer, if you haven't figured it out by now, is really never caused by one thing anyway. It's always a multifactorial perfect storm of predisposing factors um, that just have existed within your body for long enough time to initiate cancerous change and then to promote its growth and spread. But, um, you know, I encourage people to to really explore what's causing them stress. And one of the biggest stress relievers is forgiveness. We create a, a, a almost unrecognizable chronic level of a tiny tremor when we're unforgiving towards somebody who has hurt us. If you literally choose to smile, you're going to release. It's like impossible. If you smile and stand up, shoulders back, head up, big smile, even if you're forcing it, totally fake, smile, and try to get like sad about a slaughtered cow or dying puppies or something. It's like impossible. It's hard because this whole body posture just released endorphins and other chemical messengers that are like in happy mode. And it's actually without getting set, you kind of have to drop your smile and start to slump your shoulders. So even just faking it till you make it sometimes in a given day, when you just wake up on the wrong side of the bed, I'm just like, I'm happy, you know, and it, and it can really work. But one of the things I wanted to also encourage people do, to do is to join a community that supports them. It could be faith-based, um, people who support your beliefs. It's important to get sleep. Um, but it's also really important to connect with others. And so one of the things that we've done through Power Up, which is our online social community, is to create a number of options for women so that, you know, not everybody has a BFF and frankly, not everybody likes their family. So they need to find new support. And we've created that online in a really safe and powerful way. So Pink Lotus Power Up is entirely free and it's meant to just bring people together, community events, podcasts, blogs, crowdfunding, there's so much here for everyone. The one I wanted to highlight, because I'm thinking about that LACE study and the 58% increase in mortality, more currents in mortality, Breast Buddies. So Breast Buddies is this really cool online program. You just It pairs newly diagnosed women with women who have already been there, done that. And they're signed up 
because they want to connect with you. They want to befriend you and hand out an advice or just be a shoulder or virtual shoulder to cry on. And what happens is you just go in and you put in like your age, maybe 42, mastectomy, chemotherapy, and then like match.com. Everybody who is your age and stage and did chemo is going to populate. And then you can see some more and be like, oh, she has a 10-year-old too. I want to talk to her. And there are over 10,000 members already. And it's just really powerful because not everybody, as I said, has a BFF, but everybody can have a breast buddy. So I'm really proud of this program. We get such wonderful feedback, life-affirming feedback. And I think the studies show that it, that it translates into life affirmation. There's a lot to explore in here too. I encourage you to go check it out. Like I said, it's all free. Crowd cause is kind of like GoFundMe, but cheaper if you're in need of financial support and the community will donate to you. Restless is kind of like Craigslist, but you can buy, sell, trade, or give away, gently use bras, hats, wigs, etc. Because a lot of people drop a chunk of change on a wig and for chemo and then they never want to see it again when it's all over, but they don't know what to do with it. They spend so much on it. Uh, pink events, you can like just list your own event, whether you're just bragging like, hey, I'm having a ta-ta to the ta-ta's party, or you want to invite people to a 5K, etc. That's all available for listing. Rest groups is probably the most robust part of the whole power-up, and that is kind of like the functionality of Facebook. You have your own page and post, and you'd be like, hey, her second day 17 just happened, and people like it. You can go into private chats or start a discussion group. Who hates tamoxifen? And then you all kind of give your advice about how to – get over tamoxifen. And then we've got the whole cancer kicking um, section that has my podcast and the kitchen, which is partially up, but really coming soon, the cancer kicking kitchen and um, my summit. So I encourage everybody to check out power up and um, yeah, but more than anything, I encourage you to surround yourself with love. We'll we'll put a link up in the episode notes to uh, power up. And I I do want to follow up on that communal uh, aspect that you were talking about. It's so important, I think, in terms of breast cancer and health overall to have that communal support and not feel like you need to do it on your own. I always think back to when I'm having conversations like this to the studies that Dan Butner has done on the blue zones, the areas in the world where people live the longest. And one of the commonalities there one of the things that they all have in common is that sense of community, that purpose for still getting up when you're 99, 100 years old, to still get up every day is to be with the ones that you love. That is so powerful. It's as powerful as any medicine out there, really. Well, it certainly is. It's what drives you to want to make the changes that you know are important towards your health and beating cancer for good is it, why do you want to be here? And ultimately, it's to be with the ones you love. Man, I'll tell you, that why. It always comes back to what is your why. We talked about that in one of the earlier episodes. It's all about that why. So important. Uh, And that is why I am glad that you are here today. Uh, And Dr. Funk, uh, I am also glad that coming up uh, next year, uh, you are uh, doing your Cancer Kicking Summit once again. So uh, for those who have not yet heard about this, this is a fantastic thing. You're actually doing a double dip, one in April, one in October. Tell us a little bit about that. I am the pinklotus.com forward slash summit is where you can sign up for either the virtual summit in April of 2021 or the live in person, fingers crossed, COVID event in October 2021 at the gorgeous Oceanfront Terranea Resort. So this is, um, I mean, in these last four weeks, we've done, this is just skimming the surface, folks, but I do a deep dive over this uh, two day summit. 
into the soil of your life where we root around and get rid of all the things that are toxic and really just choking out the growth in your life. And then we're going to plant 10 different seeds into that soil to spring forth the most fruitful, bountiful orchard of existence you ever thought possible in your life. So we really explore, of course, diet and nutrition, but that's just one tree. We get all into moving and thinking and praying and meditating, not, not eating. We talk about fasting. It just goes really deep into very actionable, take it home right now, start it up, transform your life, don't look back, never be the same, be your most purposeful, happiest self after these two days. You will be so inspired. And we don't just cut you loose. We've got ways for you to stay connected and to really um, make that orchard grow. So please join me, whether it's virtual or in person, I look forward to seeing you. And I can't read. Did we give uh, the, the pink superwoman there on the Cancer Kicking Summit logo? Have we named her yet? No. No. Do you have a name for her? I, you know, I, I don't, but maybe we can throw that out to the listeners. All right. So what I'm going to do, we'll go ahead and we'll tweet out the, the logo. Okay. And so I want for you guys to respond to this, uh, with what you think she should be named. Okay. How about that? At Chuck Carroll, WLC is the, uh, the Twitter account. I'll put that up on Instagram as well. I and love then, it. Can, and can then. Dr. Christy Bunk. I want to see yeah, the- Ah, see, there you go. There you go. All right. So everybody's getting involved in this. We're going to send this out. We're going to come up with a great name for her. She needs a name. She absolutely she needs does. a name. She's so strong. <laughs> ah, Dr. Christy Funk, you are so strong. Uh, you have been just an enormous resource for us this entire month. And I can't thank you so very much for, uh, you know, just taking so much of your time to, to educate, inspire, enlighten all of the above. You are just really an amazing and extraordinary human being. So thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Glamour Boy. Head over to Chuck Carroll WLC on Instagram and Twitter. Give me a follow and take a look at that breast cancer superhero. I've gone ahead and posted her picture. Take a look at her and, and give her a name, please. She needs one so desperately. She's so well drawn. It would be a shame if she had no name. So go ahead and let's give Dr. Funk's breast cancer superhero a fitting name. Okay, we have one final chapter left to write in our Let's Beat Breast Cancer book this year. And that is the story of Keegan Randall. Just months after standing atop an Olympic podium with a gold medal draped around her neck, the cross-country skier found herself in another competition, this one with far higher stakes. Doctors diagnosed her with breast cancer, and now, two years later, Keegan is cancer-free and sharing her story to inspire others to take action, to lower their risk, and tackle the challenge with Olympic caliber ferocity and strength. It is so good to have you here. Thanks so much for making the time. My pleasure. It's great to uh, it's great to be a part of this uh, such a positive campaign to to really help people live their best lives. I want to talk about you and living your best life. You have a great story, sure to inspire a lot of people. So let's talk about this diagnosis. What exactly were you diagnosed with? What form of breast cancer? 
I ended up with triple positive uh, breast cancer and basal invasive ductal carcinoma, IDC. Um, mine was considered stage 2B because I had two small tumors, a uh, little, little bit bigger than the size of a pea, and we ended up finding another small pea-sized lump in my armpit um, that means it was on the move. So um, definitely an aggressive form, and therefore we had to dive into treatment right away. Now, what? this was just a matter of months. I think it was maybe three months or so after you had captured gold. Is that correct? It was, yeah. I mean, really an unbelievable high to an unexpected low uh, in such a short time. So when I discovered uh, the lumps in, in my breast, I felt in the shape of my life. I mean, I really had just come off the Olympic season, come off a 20-year career as a professional cross-country skier, and thank goodness that I know my body really well. And I really credit the education that I got growing up that if you find something, you know, always kind of be checking yourself. If you find something, you know, go show it to a medical professional because it would have been really easy to say, ah, it's nothing. I feel amazing. I'm superhuman almost. Um, but thankfully I did get it checked out and we were able to catch it at an earlier stage. Aside from just, well, I mean, let's talk about that shock. I mean, even though you were taught from an early age to check and and be mindful uh, for this, but uh, still, you really were in the shape of your life. I mean, you had just captured gold. You had been professionally competing for 20 years. You had to have been just shocked by this. Oh, I was in total disbelief when I got the call from uh, a friend of mine who was a radiologist who actually kind of... Um, over it was the one to call me when he got the results. Um, I was on my way to uh, one of my friend's weddings in Sweden, uh, some World Cup competitors that I'd gotten in over the years. When I heard the news, I just I couldn't believe it. Um, you know, my first reaction was this was disbelief. My second reaction was, wait a second, this isn't fair. I exercise, I eat right, I don't drink uh, too much. You know, it's like I've done everything, I have no family history. Like this, this just can't happen. Uh, but the next stage of that for me was my athlete frame of mind kicked in and I realized that this was going to be similar to chasing that Olympic gold medal. It was going to be something big and difficult that I was going to have to break into small, small pieces and take one day at a time. It was something I was not going to be able to handle alone. I needed to do it with a team and it was going to be something that there would be a lot outside of my control. And so I was going to have to really take my mental focus and try to uh, put that focus on things that I could control and to just stay hopeful through the process. Were you still able to attend your friend's wedding? I was, uh, you know, the, the, thankfully, you know, it was, it was a friend that called and he just explained to me that, you know, over the, the course of the week that I was there, there was really nothing we needed to do immediately. So do your best to try to enjoy it. And I did, you know, I just, I knew it was in the back of my mind, but I said, if anything, a cancer diagnosis does for you, is it real? It reminds you to live in the moment. So I did the best to just enjoy the time with my friends, being in a beautiful place, celebrating such a beautiful thing. And then um, when the wedding was over, I, I flew back home immediately and, and got um, proactive about figuring out what I needed to do to beat this. Yeah, let's talk about that that positive mental attitude as you're attacking this. How important would you say that is uh, for anyone who is facing such a a, a a diagnosis such as this. I mean, this is just life altering, life shattering. Uh, but you, you really faced this head on with as much of a smile as you possibly could. How much of a role did that play in your treatment? 
Well, there's no doubt that facing cancer was the most challenging obstacle, setback, adversity that I had ever faced. I had had some injuries during my career. I'd had a, actually a massive blood clot in my leg uh, 10 years earlier um, that had taught me that when you do face an obstacle like this, your brain wants to focus on the fear and the anger and the frustration, and you could get in this spiral that just really takes you nowhere. Um, but all those things that you don't have control over, you need to kind of put those to the side and you need to use all your energy to focus on the things that you can control because that gives your mind something to do. And it's amazing how like those little steps day by day start to build up and eventually you get better and you get back to doing all the things you want to do. Um, and if you just sit there and think about all the, the negative things, um, it just it just makes you feel worse. Um, and so knowing that from my athletic career, I really tried to apply that idea to my cancer diagnosis and say, there is going to be a lot out of my control. There is for sure a lot to be scared about, but there's also a lot to be hopeful for. We've caught it early. Um, I have an amazing family that's going to support me and friends. Um, I'm going to stay active and hope that, you know, those doing all those good, healthy things for my body are going to help my body get through this. And I'm going to stay hopeful that someday I'm going to get to a point where I'll be cancer free and I'll get back to doing all those things. And that hope kept me going through those really tough days. Yeah. And staying physically active, that is one of the four steps uh, critical to our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign here at the Physicians Committee. Um, how much of a role did that play in your treatment and recovery? Were you able to keep up with your activity levels? How did, how did that change throughout your course of treatment and recovery? Well, being active is really just at the central core of who I am. And I knew that that was going to be important going through my treatment. Now, never having been through cancer before, I didn't know what my physical capabilities would be. So I decided to make the intention at the start of my treatment that I would try to do at least 10 minutes of activity a day. And my idea was that I would go out and I would do 10 minutes. And at the end of 10 minutes, if my body was tired, uh, I would listen to those signals and say, today I need rest. But oftentimes, just committing to that 10 minutes, it got me outside, it got me moving and usually at the end of 10 minutes, I thought, well, I think I can do 10 more. And, and it would encourage me to get out. And one day it turned into four hours. And what I really saw was that that physical activity, it helped my body physically process the treatment. I saw far less water retention right after my chemotherapy infusions when I would get out and do a bike ride or a walk or a roller ski the next day, as opposed to um, one time I wasn't able to get out and my body took like 13 pounds of fluid on. So the physical activity for sure helped me physically, but mentally too, that 10 minutes, it gave me a little victory every day. And some days those 10 minutes were the slowest, uh, you know, walk around the block some days I could go out and I could do strength training in the gym and I can do intervals. So I think if you just approach it with a little bit of curiosity, um, now that I've lived through it, there's no doubt in my mind that trying to stay active. And for everybody, it's different. I was lucky. I was coming in with a lot of fitness. Um, so my level of activity, it was down from what I was used to, but it was actually pretty solid. For some people, the side effects are really terrible and it's a lot harder. Um, so I think you just have to listen to your body. But I think making that, con that commitment at the beginning was so helpful for me.
Have you had the opportunity to speak with other women who are currently going through treatment, but are really struggling to be able to get up and and keep their body moving? What kind of words of wisdom can you offer them that would help them actually push through on those really, really difficult days? Well, I found through my through my entire life, uh, role models are incredibly powerful. Um, when I see someone else do something, someone I can relate to, um, it gives me the confidence that I can do it. And so I was decided to be very um, open about what I was going through and, and both my, my victories maybe, but also my struggles, the days where it really was hard to get out and do things. And by sharing that story, I think it, it's helped some other men and women out there who are also going through treatment to say like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this physical activity a try. Um, and it looks a little different for everybody. Um, but I think it's not about what you do. It's about the fact that you are moving in some way and, and if that helps. And some days you do have to listen to your body and you do have to rest. But I was pleasantly surprised days when I thought I wouldn't be able to do much. It actually made me feel better. And so I just try to help encourage others to try um, to go out there. You know, it, you might be amazed at what your body responds to uh, and what it likes to do. And um, you know, I think it's the mindset's probably the most powerful thing uh, of just not being too critical of yourself, just saying, hey, I'm going to give this a try because I think it's going to be good. It's going to give me a victory just to get out and do something. Um, and uh, it's going to at least get you out and get you away from sitting on the couch thinking about how miserable you feel. Um, so I just try to encourage everyone and just be really supportive. And uh, I found that friends and family encouraging me to just get out and come with me was also really powerful. And here, here's the inspirational part. How is your health today? My health is amazing. I am so incredibly grateful. Um, so when I finished my treatment in January of 2019, I decided that my comeback goal was going to be to run the New York City Marathon in November. And I wanted to try to run it under three hours. A little bit naive at the beginning, thinking that three hours was, was going to be a, a very achievable goal. And then once I got going in the training, it turned out to be more challenging than I thought. But that was my goal. And I really started with a with an eight-month training plan. I gradually built up my strength. I gradually built up the mileage. And last November, um, I got to run the New York City Marathon with two of my close friends. Um, it was a beautiful day. Um, it was one of those hurts so good kind of thing. Definitely physically grueling. But I ended up running the race in 2.55 and achieving my goal and just crossing that finish line knowing all that I'd been through and being able to prove to myself that, that I had worked my way back um, was just an incredible reward. Yeah. I mean, compare the emotions of that day to the day that you were diagnosed and everything that you had been through. I would imagine crossing that finish line in, in less than three hours or otherwise, honestly, it meant so much more to you at that point than it possibly ever could have had you not been through what it was that you had just survived. Well, the, the gift that going through cancer has given me is that I don't have mediocre days anymore. Um, you know, being an Olympic athlete, I've experienced the pinnacle of physical performance. And let's be honest, I'm never going to be at that level again because the amount of training and dedication it took to get there. So it would have been easy to retire from skiing and, and then kind of always be comparing myself and going, oh, well, it's not as good. I don't feel as strong. But thanks to going through cancer, I mean, every day that I can get out and do something, you know, particularly with the people I love is a victory for me. And so, yeah, to cross that finish line, to be able to push myself, um, to be out there with so many people that were all achieving such big goals for themselves 
it's it's a powerful thing. Like if you had never done a marathon, just to be out there and part of the atmosphere is incredibly inspirational. And um, yeah, it, it, that crossing that finish line wouldn't have been so meaningful if I hadn't had to go through the struggle of cancer treatment. Uh, your positivity is just, it's infectious, Keegan. And, and I know that one of the things that you're doing now to raise awareness for breast cancer treatment and advance the research, you have uh, what what's called the It's Going to Be Okay line. Talk to us a little bit about what that is. Well, when I was going through treatment, I had these rainbow colored running shoes that I started wearing to all my appointments, all my chemo sessions. And it was amazing how even in those darkest moments, I could look down at my feet and I could see that color and it would remind me to stay hopeful and to look forward. And so this was so powerful for me that my husband and I came up with the idea of coming out with some brightly colored socks with our slogan that we found ourselves saying to each other a lot, which was, it's going to be okay. It's choosing to be hopeful, choosing to say to the next hour, the next day could be better. And so we came out with these brightly colored socks and we started selling them on my website and we donate $2 from every pair we sell to an organization called Active Against Cancer, which is studying the connection between physical activity and cancer treatment outcomes. They're finding tremendous results and their goal is to ultimately make physical activity a prescripted part of treatment, which again, now that I've lived through it myself, I wholeheartedly believe in. So it's been an amazing project for us to put these socks out there. They certainly still motivate me and inspire me on days when I'm, I'm having a tough day. Um, and they and they work for everything. The great part is, um, you know, if, if, you, if you've uh, dropped your wallet in a puddle, um, if you're a skier and you're hoping it's gonna snow, we all need those reminders in our life that it's going to be okay. And so these socks are a way to bring us all together, to stay hopeful and to raise money for a great cause. And I can't think of a better message for 2020 overall than it's going to be okay either. I got to get my hand on a pair of these socks. Uh, your website is keekan.com, K-I-K-K-A-N.com. That's where you can go to pick up some of the, ah, you see the socks right there. Uh, the director is on point today. Oh, I love those. You know what? You know, the holidays are coming up and, and something tells me that these would make great stocking stuffers. And I don't mean a pun because these are socks anyway. These are just fantastic. So, uh, Keegan, thank you so very much for taking the time to share your journey with us and just this inspiration. And I love my big takeaway from this conversation is that as a cancer survivor, you don't have mediocre days. You know, that is just so powerful to me. So it has really been a privilege to share some time with you today. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Keegan Randall, check her out, keegan.com. Give her a follow on Instagram at, uh, oh boy, I love this one, Keek Animal, K-I-K-K-A-N-I-M-A-L on Instagram. That is a must-follow account right there. Keegan Randall, five-time Olympian, gold medalist, and breast cancer survivor. If you'd like to go ahead and watch the interview with Keegan, you can head over to the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel or Facebook page and look for her episode of The Exam Room Live that aired October 19th, 2020. All month long, we have been asking you to stand with us in the fight against breast cancer. And it is still not too late. Because whether it's October or November or any other month for that matter, it really doesn't matter. Because October is just a collection of days on the calendar. But breast cancer 
Breast cancer is on its own timeline. It doesn't take any days off. It can strike on any given day at any given point of the year. So whether you're hearing this in the fall or the winter, the spring or the summer, let's beat breast cancer together. And one of the ways that you can join with us in that fight is to visit letsbeatbreastcancer.org and pledge to follow the four steps that have been created by Dr. Funk and other experts. Pledge to follow them, study them, take a look at them, and live a healthier life with a lower risk of cancer. And for doing that, not only will you be improving your health and lowering your risk, but you will also receive a free e-cookbook that is packed with cancer-fighting recipes and be entered to win a great grand prize pack courtesy of our phenomenal sponsors for the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. Sponsors like The Green Mustache and Third Love and Sisters Network, Inc. And we want to thank them for their support of the campaign this year. And I want to thank you as well for joining us as we conclude our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series. We hope that you have listened and learned and become inspired by the stories of survival. And I hope that you now are filled with hope. Because whether breast cancer runs in your family or you're in the fight right now, know that there are things that you can do to lower your risk and live a longer, healthier life. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Christy Funk for all of her time and effort and energy that was poured into the Let's Be Breast Cancer series this year. And I also want to say thank you again to Keegan Randall for joining us and sharing her incredible story of overcoming this horrible disease. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe take a stand, keep it plant-based, and let's beat breast cancer.